So language matters. In fact, effective communication is not really effective if the communicator can't be understood, right? Right. There was at least one person. Communication, right? Okay. So I feel like it's, it would be helpful for us this morning um, to do a quick recap of terminology. Um, some of you have been uh, faithfully listening to, me, listening to me preach for uh, all the years I've been here, for almost six years now, and some of you, uh, this is your first morning. And so whether, uh, wherever you fall on that spectrum, it's good periodically to make sure that when I use a word, you're hearing the word that I'm using with the definition that I'm intending. Does that make sense? Yeah, right? Because otherwise we can get lost in the, we can get lost in the murk. Here's the first uh, thing that I want to look at. I want to look, take one uh, snapshot of a word and I t- want to take one quick flyover of a philosophy. The word is gospel. Pretty important word, right? Um, we have four books in the New Testament that are the gospel of. Um, when you think of the word gospel, it, it can tend to get kind of subsumed in, um, it can tend to get subsumed in uh, kind of common evangelical parlance, right? It's shorthand to mean something. The problem comes when a word becomes shorthand to mean something, it may be too short of a shorthand. Here's what I mean. Track with me here. Um, all, ordinarily, when we hear the word gospel, we immediately go to thinking about an invitation to move from unbelief to belief as in an opportunity to be saved. Do you understand what I mean by that? We hear gospel, it is shorthand for an opportunity to move from unbelief to belief as in an opportunity to be saved. Now, it is no less than that when the word is used. However, to stop there and say that that's all that it means is to uh, dramatically undercut the witness of Scripture and the meaning and implication of the word. Here's what I mean by that. Um, It's a mistake to hear when I or anyone else from this pulpit says things like believe the gospel that we are simply now referring exclusively and only in the room to people who may not yet have moved from unbelief to belief as as in needing to be saved. Do you understand this? Remember... um, The gospel is a declaration. It's an announcement. It is news. It is no less than, but it is substantially more than a cross and a substitute. It is also resurrection. It is also ascension. It is the pouring out of the Spirit. It is the promise of a return. It is the good news of the person and the work of Jesus. So when we look at how the gospel impacts us as Christians, we're not only thinking about um, the gratitude of Christ being our substitute and sacrifice on the cross in the past. We're not only thinking about that. We are also thinking about how the 
Christ in flesh, really and bodily, is our present, right now, ascended intercessor, helper, advocate, priest, and king. How he presently nourishes us with nothing less than himself. How he presently sustains us in trial. How he presently enables us to live more and more like himself because we are united with him. Friends, I need you to see this. I need you to understand what I'm saying here. And and I know that this can be um, challenging because... um, uh, my wife and I have friends of ours where we uh, challenge them to say that they are, uh, w- when they're struggling in their life, that they have, they're fundamentally uh, not believing the good news of the gospel, and they think we're challenging that they're not Christians. And that's not what we're saying. But if you think that the gospel is just the entry point into the kingdom, but now you've got to work out life, not sure if God's pleased enough with you or not, it's not good news at all. It's only good news if God is pleased because Jesus is pleased with you and Jesus has called you his and he has not stopped interceding or advocating for you before the throne of grace. So to think that every time I mention believing the gospel, I'm speaking to those who need an opportunity to consider whether or not they need to be saved is only part of it. But it's not all of it. So it's also an opportunity for you and I, for you and I as Christians, to also consider moving from unbelief to belief. But I don't mean by that that you are an unbeliever as in outside the kingdom and need to move to a believer as in inside the kingdom. What I mean by this is moving from unbelief to belief of where is functionally the gospel not taking hold in your life today. Okay? When you fear the approval of man, you have functionally disbelieved that you have the approval of God, which trumps anything that any man can say to you. Do you understand? So, our unbelief is not the kind that keeps us out of the kingdom, but rather is an unbelief that blocks the power of the grace of God from healing every aspect of our heart and life as followers of Jesus. I won't quote it now, but you can go back and look at what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about the very things that I don't want to do, these are the things that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his present struggle with sin, Paul's present lament is who will save me now as the apostle, as a son of of, of God, as a follower of Jesus, who will save me now? Thanks be to God for Jesus who rescues me. This is not Paul saying he's not a Christian. This is Paul saying that the only hope he has is the good news of Jesus. All this is vital for us to get. It's vital for us to understand I'm going to be honest with you, it's taken me close to two decades of wrestling with this, wrestling with the implications of this, to get to the point where it's starting to break the surface. So here's the second refresher. 
Second refresher is on a philosophy, right? A philosophy of, of, philosophy of preaching that's directly informed uh, by the terminology that I just talked about, okay? So, as Christians, we are constantly, constantly engaged in a dance of believing the gospel. So we're repenting of sin, we're believing, we're trusting, we're receiving um, what Christ has for us, not just on the cross, but what Christ has for us today by his very present intercession and advocacy for us. And then in that power, we fight as Christians. We fight uh, the tyranny of sin, the flesh, and the devil. We know that we don't fight alone, that Jesus fights with us. Jesus fights for us. Jesus sometimes fights in spite of us. But one of the challenges that we have is that sin is deceptive. Okay? So, sin is actually, the way sin works is it's actually, it actually looks attractive. It looks good. And like the old saying goes, if it's not broke, why fix it? Here's the problem for many of us. It's not enough just to hear the truth. It's, we, what we need to do is understand why the lies that we believe are working so well for us. Do you understand? You believe a lie, it's working well. Why do I need the truth? The lie is getting me along just fine. And if it's not broke, why fix it? As in many cases, when people are dealing with things like um, addiction, substance abuse, whatever, they actually have to hit rock bottom. Do you know what that is? It's finally coming to terms with the reality that the lie that they've been living in isn't working for them anymore. It's only then that they could be willing to go through the pain of changing because the pain of changing is less than the pain of remaining where they are. So, Christian, if you're struggling as to why the truth of the gospel isn't changing your life, may I suggest to you that one of the missing components in looking at your own heart and having the Spirit guide you may be you've not really dealt with why the lie is working so well for you. Because the gospel's not going to be an add-on to a lie, Right? The gospel's not just some sort, of, uh, some sort of thing that just sort of fits neatly around your already well-packaged life. The gospel is a transformation wherein God is taking a dead thing and making it a living thing. God's taking a broken thing and making it a put-together thing. God is taking the old man and putting the old man away and bringing a new man to life in and through Christ Jesus. The gospel's not an add-on to your already good life. The gospel is a rebirth to a brand new life. Now, I say all of this. I say all of this. Because when we think about studying Philippians, Paul 
is getting ready to talk to the church about why they're having such a hard time. Now, ordinarily, ordinarily, I would not take an entire sermon on the opening two lines that functionally are a greeting, except... Do you remember um, watching with your kids on Sesame Street? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. If you look at Paul's greeting, there's some really significant changes that he has made to the greeting that are really important for us to see. So I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. We're going to read this opening greeting that Paul gives to the church. Let me invite you to stand as we read this together. two verses. Let's hear God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Help us, we pray, O God to hear you. If we've been walking with you for many decades, would we hear this day the present good news of the gospel, that Jesus stands ready as our advocate, our helper, our high priest, our great prophet, and our only true and right king. And if this day, O oh God, we have never walked with you by faith, would today be the day of salvation? All these things we pray in the matchless and strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Be seated. So, in order to understand a little bit of context for Philippians is important. Philippians was a province of Rome uh, about a century or so before Paul and uh, his church planting team arrived there in Philippians. Um, they had been conquered by Rome, uh, made a Roman province, which was in turn for them pretty fantastic because it meant that all of the citizens of Philippi ended up being uh, having the same rights and privileges of citizens of Rome. Um, that worked out really well for them. Uh, Philippi almost became kind of a miniature Rome in the sense of the culture of the city, um, the wealth of the city. It also helped that there were, um, there were uh, soldiers of the army um, that would retire from their service in Caesar's army, and they would actually go take up their residence in Philippi. So what that meant was now a lot of the um, cultural trappings of Philippi became part of the uh, became uh, very much synonymous with Rome. Um, in fact, so much so that they uh, they took on um, the language of Rome. So even though Macedonia in this area Greek was predominantly spoken, they took on Latin. They worshipped the, uh, the Roman uh, deities. They paid homage to the Roman Caesars with their, uh, with their taxes and their inscriptions. Noticeably absent from the makeup of Philippi was a synagogue. 
Um, some have speculated that likely what was going on was there was so few uh, Jewish men, they didn't have enough, uh, they didn't have enough families there to constitute a synagogue. Now, if you're reading through Acts and Paul's missionary journeys, in Acts chapter 16, you're going to encounter, um, as Paul uh, and Silas and the church planting team did, as they came in on the banks of the ocean, there were groups of people that longed to know the God of Israel. They were having prayer meetings. Now, one of them was a woman named Lydia. You remember reading about Lydia in Acts chapter 16. She was a trader and uh, she was a trader in fine cloth. Lydia um, ended up becoming a, a host home. She, she opened her home for a house church. Later in Acts chapter 16, you find this encounter where when Paul uh, and some of the other uh, apostles and disciples healed a slave girl of her demon, it caused quite an uproar. You see, her slave master had become quite uh, uh, pleased with being able to uh, utilize her demonic possession because it enabled her to tell the future. Paul took that away. Paul and the team were imprisoned. They were beaten. They were scourged. That night, as the jailer there at Philippi was um, uh, overseeing his charges there in the, uh, in the Philippian jail, there were great songs that broke out among the disciples. And an earthquake, and they were freed. But not before the jailer asked, what is it? <laughs> Who is this God that you all are singing about? I wonder, perhaps a dozen or so years later, as Paul turns his pen now, while chained to a Roman guard, and writes this incredibly affectionate letter, as the letter is read out loud, I wonder, was Lydia still hosting a, home, a house church? Was she there to hear of Paul's chains, but his affection for her and for her people? As the jailer was there, I wonder, did he, when he heard uh, in Philippians 1.30 about the same conflict you saw I had, Paul, if he remembered Paul's bleeding back, was he replaying the songs he heard that night in jail as Paul uh, now speaks of his chains and joy? It's worth wondering if the slave girl that Paul set free, now fully in her right mind, hearing about uh, Jesus, rejoicing and hearing about this Christ who saved her, who's at work all over Asia Minor. I wonder, were the Roman citizens who once praised Caesar as Lord, who now rejoice in the fact that Philippians 3.20 is true, that their citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We wonder, as Paul wrote this letter, about the people that were there and the people that were hearing it. But let's face it, friends, it was a church. Churches uh, are sometimes known to have problems. I don't know if you knew that. They're full of people. And people are full of themselves. Now, Paul's going to address things. He's going to address things like legalism creeping in, Judaizers that would want to come in and try and add to the gospel of grace. But one of the things that's most profoundly uh, on Paul's mind is how individuality has crept into the church. Philippi was remarkably self-centered. And that showed itself in competing interpersonal frictions and factions. Paul returns to this over and over. Why? Why does he return to that? Why is it such a big deal? Because persecution was real and persecution was coming. And this was the time for the church to be united and unified under the banner of Christ Jesus the Lord, not infighting among themselves. To be to be frank about it. The church, the members of the church, they were not so much a fan of this idea of being slaves. Now, I'm not talking about chattel slavery, such as was done in the United States. But still, nonetheless, they knew what slavery was. And so to be, uh, to be told that they, uh, in fact, are not individuals, but they are first all together yoked up and bondservants of Christ Jesus was not a particularly popular thing to describe. And yet Paul saw it to be critical to their understanding of the gospel. Because slaves, you recall, were not free to call their own shots. But they rather must do what they're told. The Greeks spoke of slaves as talking tools or thinking tools, like a plow or a hammer. No more dignity than that. They had to submit their personal preferences, opinions, convenience, schedules, even their physical health and safety to their master. Who do you think was signing up for that position? Well, that is, unless the master was Jesus. So Paul, even in these opening verses, takes on gently what he will later take on bluntly. There is a paradox in the gospel that the way down is the way up, that only by being slaves can you be free. Now, he's going to go on and give reasons to believe that becoming Christ's slave is the only road to lasting joy, and he does it starting out in these opening two verses. How is there joy in being captivated as Christ's slave? When Christ, the master, may allow you to be beaten, imprisoned, fall ill, go bankrupt, be destitute, be killed. Where, my friends, would the joy be found in that? Where's the hope in that? That's part of what we want to explore today. 
So look with me um, at Paul's opening to the letter. Paul and Timothy, verse 1, servants of Christ Jesus. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. The very first thing I want you to see this morning is that the heart of joy is selflessly serving Jesus and others for the sake of Christ. Here's how I get that. It all has to do with the variations, right? Remember I said one of these things are not like the other. If you look at um, normal letters that would have gone out around this time, you would have seen um, a pattern. In fact, if you look at other Pauline letters, you would see a pattern. Here's the first thing that you see. Paul here shares his title with Timothy. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. In other letters, Paul uses title like Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and then he notes his co-authors, those that might be with him. In other circumstances, he notes Timothy as his brother. Only here does Paul open by addressing a colleague with himself and then linking the names to the same title. They are servants, they are slaves. The Greek word for servant, doulos, is the same as the Greek word for slave. Paul links the titles together. So it's important that the Philippians see that these men have the authority that they do because Christ has bound them to himself, and as a result, they are his slaves. What a paradox. Right out of the gate, Paul is saying that the reason that we have authority to speak to you, he doesn't use Paul, an apostle, he saves that for other letters. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants, slaves of Christ Jesus. These men are living proof that those who Jesus saves, Jesus enslaves. What does that mean? There is no formulation found anywhere in the writ of Holy Scripture that would make salvation an add-on to an otherwise autonomous Life, the gospel, the good news is not just a switch to flip to get out of eternal punishment. It is a union where we are forever bound to the person of Jesus. We are enslaved. We are not calling the shots. We are not our own. Now, at first, at first, this may sound harsh, right? After all, how is there good news in saying that we have lost ourselves and been enslaved to someone? But here's, here's the thing I want you to consider, friends. It is, a, it is a false dichotomy to say that we went from being free to being enslaved. The Bible knows nothing of such a dichotomy. You and I are always in service to something or someone. The Bible calls sin a taskmaster, a slave driver. We are always enslaved to something or someone. 
So it is not a matter of, I wasn't enslaved, but now I am. Oh, yes, you were. You were enslaved to sin. You are still enslaved to Jesus. The problem is, sin will kill you, and Jesus will resurrect you. Everything that you and I do is predicated on pleasing someone, making someone happy, some type of Lord. Church father John Christensen said made uh, made this comment. He said, uh, "One who's a slave of Christ is truly free from sin. If he is truly a slave of Christ, he is not a slave of any other realm." Another thing that uh, Paul does here when he uses the term slave is that he's redefining the term. Um, one of the things as we've uh, had Bible studies together and I've had private conversations with you is uh, made this argument that just because um, the culture around us has corrupted a term doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't get a chance to redeem the term. And in fact, if the term is in the Bible at all, that means the Bible, not the culture, is what gets to define what it means. To the mind of the Philippian, to be a slave meant nothing but powerlessness and subservience. But Paul shows them that the scriptures of the Old Testament, where the title slave or servant of the Lord applied to leaders such as Moses and Joshua and David, all foreshadows of the ultimate servant Lord spoken of by Isaiah, who would accomplish all that the Father had set out for him to do through obedience and suffering. Where in this letter does Paul use the title servant or slave again? There's just one other spot. He uses it in Philippians chapter 2. This beautiful passage about the kenosis of Christ that Jesus clothed himself in humanity, emptied himself, came down, became one of us where Jesus took on the form of a servant and offered himself in obedience and death on the cross. The honor that Jesus infuses into the role of a slave is that he himself assumed it in his incarnation. So the word itself is a title befitting one no less than Jesus. Paul and Timothy invite others to see the fruit of this union. Paul in his chains as he writes, what, what would it do for us to see that our greatest happiness, that our greatest joy is found in no other place than in the reality that because we are servants, slaves of Christ Jesus, that we get to call no shots with our time or our talent or our treasures in life that we are those who are spoken to by the master and obey his words, knowing that, there is that it is only there where our fullest dignity, power, and joy, and satisfaction lie. But there's a second adjustment that Paul makes to the opening salutation of the letter. And I just want you to see, I want you to see this quickly here in um, the latter part of verse 1. Not only does Paul address the letter to the church, but he also addresses the letter to the church's leaders. Look at what it says. To all the saints 
in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Okay? So what's he saying? He is saying to the members of the congregation, it is a gentle reminder, even here, that this is true. Paul is saying that when you are tempted to dig in and insist that you get your own way, remember that you are not an island unto yourself. You are not a silo of personal quiet times, personal relationship with Jesus, Jesus has embedded you in a community of authority and accountability for your good. And your pastor and elders are not your podcasts. They are not your personal Bible studies you do at home. They are not Table Talk magazine. I like Table Talk. I'm just (laughs) clarifying that, right? But your pastor and elders are real flesh and blood people who know you and pray for you and lift you up and indeed have been placed in authority over you and are there for your mutual accountability with them. You have overseers who watch out for you and deacons who love you and serve you. Paul is saying, learn the joy of servanthood. Learn the joy of slavehood by watching your leaders. And to the leaders, oh, by the way, I think that Paul in this is speaking to them and saying this. Remember that you are not the final authority either. You, like us, are subject to another. So that's part of verse 1. I want to quickly quickly now uh, consider the second part, which is saints in Christ, right? He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Um, The other word suggests the why. Why does being Christ's slave generate joy? And it's this. The heart of joyful service is being set apart to stand awestruck before the beauty of King Jesus. When Paul calls those, he's writing saints. Paul is invoking a picture of privileged access. Privileged access. Um, In the Bible, the word saint and the word holy are both words that evoke the same core concept. These are words that describe the purity that befits the privilege of standing in the presence of of God, the purity that befits the privilege of standing in the presence of God. Another way of describing uh, describing it is that um, holiness is a dangerous privilege. Why? Well, friends, it's dangerous. Because God is not our flight attendant or our administrative assistant. He is the God that holds the entire cosmos together by the very spoken word of his being. If God stops speaking, we stop being. It's the same God that Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. a dangerous privilege. We are being invited to stand before the presence of that God 
the God who is the God of the entire universe, and yet he is the same all-holy God because we were created to be near him, beholding his beauty and attending to his desire, and in fact, he has drawn us near. So in opening this letter, Paul bestows on them a title that is surprising because in the midst of this congregation are people from all sorts of different backgrounds, ethnicities, bringing with them all sorts of baggage and backstories. This same title now applies to both Lydia and the jailer alike. That they are not only servants of Christ Jesus, but they are also saints. They are holy in him. They have the privilege that befits the purity of those who would stand in the presence of God. How does the sainthood happen? How do these titles get bestowed on people who don't even fit the first criteria of the job description to apply? Simple. They are saints in Christ Jesus. All the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Because we are in Christ Jesus, we have reason for rejoicing and our only source of encouragement. Being in Christ Jesus is Paul's shorthand for the truth that men, women, boys, and girls who have put their faith and their hope and their trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done are bound to him in such a way that Jesus' life, obedience, death, resurrection, all of those things become theirs. His life is our life. His death is our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. Being in Christ Jesus is our union that makes these precious truths ours in fact. Because he lives, we live. And so Paul says to all the saints, to you all, to y'all, He prays, he's confident in, he is partners with, and he longs for. Here's the thing. You and I don't love like this. We reduce our you-alls to the you-some. You, the guys I like. You, the people that don't get on my nerves. You don't have to nod openly. You know you do it. I do too. To say that there are fellow Christians who are nonetheless saints, but I just don't really get along so much with them, Paul would have known nothing of this. He would not have the first idea how to live this way, much less run a church this way. So here Paul says that there is dignity. And in fact, the only source of life and joy is to be a servant of Jesus, a slave of Jesus. And then Paul then says that the way of that joy is to behold and to be embraced in the union that we have with the joy giver, our status as saints. This this status gives us a strange unity that cannot be achieved outside of Jesus. But it's hard. Frankly, it's nearly impossible. When things go wrong, when tensions flare, when arguments surface, when feelings get hurt, it is really, really easy to withdraw and give up. 
to say that I can't risk getting hurt anymore by people. So, so what force is strong enough to keep us together when our internal defense mechanisms just want things to be easy and for the problems to go away? And that's, uh, that's third, Paul's third point, the significance in this salutation. Look at verse 2. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This blessing holds the key. This blessing holds the answer. It is the grace and the peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ that hold the power and the possibility of turning selfless service into lasting joy. So again, ordinarily right? Um, Ordinarily, the opening of a Greek letter would have within it such meaningless formalities such as greetings, valued customer, or to our neighbors living at, or my personal favorite, when the uh, mail merge fails and it says, dear pound sign name. I'm not a hashtag, thank you very much. Paul here doesn't use nonsense Greek. Paul here uses Greek to point us to the heart of the gospel. He says grace. The embrace of the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit lavished on those who deserved condemnation but instead get the benefits of the King. Paul is pleased that that these friends are partakers with him of this grace. And because they are partakers with him in this grace, it results in peace. Remember, in the Bible, throughout the Bible, peace is never just an absence of conflict. It is a fullness of something. It is the fullness of God himself. To say grace and peace is to say grace is what you have been given and peace is its result. You get free and unmerited favor not just to lose conflict but to gain God himself. It is the words of that old hymn that I love. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I deserve to die. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. The beauty of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This not only gives us access to the throne to move from unbelief to belief as those who are outside the kingdom, but this continues to give us access to the throne to move from unbelief to belief as believers, as those inside the kingdom, as we do battle against the old man in the flesh that dwells within us. It is in this being brought near, in and through the work of Jesus alone, that we find that within Christ's service, there is perfect freedom. To be captivated by Christ Jesus, enslaved and belonging to another, is true freedom. God designed us to be part of a community, both with himself and with our neighbors, but our selfishness, our turned-in natures have seduced us to thinking that real freedom is found when we look out for ourselves, when we keep our options open, when we guard our hearts and don't let anyone get too close. I have a friend of mine who I went to go see this week. 
your friends from a, another time in another state living out here in Texas now. And in the surgery to perform a hysterectomy, the surgeon found what we feared. Cancer. All over the place. I asked her in the days before her surgery when I was in their kitchen praying with them, I said, who do you have in your life right now that you can just admit who you really are and what's really going on? That you're scared, that you're afraid, and in those moments, they're not going to try and fix you. They're not going to try and correct your theology. They don't think that you're not a Christian. They don't think that you failed as a Christian because you're afraid right now that you have a growth that wasn't part of your design growing in your body. And she said, I don't think I have anybody like that. You know what I think? I think she's not the only one. We live in a world that is both more connected and more isolated than it has ever been. If you have more than one friend in your life that knows your heart and knows you well, that you can go dark with, and you can say how you're really doing and how you're really feeling, and they don't try to fix you, you're among the privileged few. But I would contend that most of us don't have that person. So how has this connected autonomy worked out for you? How full of joy are you in Christ and with one another? How full can you be when our relationships are a series of likes on social media or small, incidental, safe encounters with one another? When our hearts are not fully known, do you understand that you actually need the people of God? And do not trot the line out with me of, well, I'm introverted. Yes, that means you need a few relationships in which you can go deep. That's what energizes you. It's not a matter of you don't like people. If you believe that, you don't understand what being an introvert means, speaking as one. It means that lots of people will drain you. A few people will energize you. Saying that you're an introvert to be alone is not what introversion is. It's an excuse. It's a cover. Likewise, saying that you're an extrovert, you just want to know all the people, you can know all the people while at the same time knowing none of the people. Just so we're clear. Do you know that you need God himself? Do you have saints in Christ Jesus for whom you just distance yourself because they are hard to love? Just between you and I, is it a possibility that you are the hard to love one and people are distancing themselves from you? I'm not saying it's you. It's probably not. Do you honor and heed the words and works of the shepherds that God has set over your soul? Do you pray for them? Do you respect them? My friends, look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus did. He gave up 
all of it for you so that you might have all of it in him. Are you ready to consider with me for just a moment that individuality might be a lie and it might not be working for you as well as you think it is? Are you ready to hear Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Metrocrest, along with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way you're going to be able to hear the truth is if the truth is more beautiful than the lie you're believing. So if you're ready to give up on individuality and take steps towards the freedom that is the truth, beloved, listen, Jesus stands at the ready to receive you today, whether today is the first day you've ever believed or today is the first day of the rest of your life. Believe the good news of the gospel. God embraces you, he forgives you, and strengthens you to live and love as a follower of Jesus.